the Love Yourself Naked podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Glubish, and I've been working with women for over two years to help them ditch the diet mentality, find food freedom, and gain a body confidence that they never knew was possible. There is so much information out there about how to eat, how to exercise, and how to live a healthy lifestyle. My goal on the show is to help answer all your questions and provide you the tools you need to live in peace with food and love your body. So if you are ready to discover what it's like to live a life without obsession, you are in the right place. Now let's get to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I am incredibly honored to be joined by the lovely Dr. Jody Carrington. Jody has a PhD in clinical psychology and a huge passion for connection. She is the author of the best-selling book, Kids These Days. And I know she's really going to leave an incredible impact on anyone who has the privilege to listen to this. So Jody, welcome. Chelsea. Thank you for friggin' having me. This I'm is so, so exciting. I, I loved our, like, you know, we just had a brief little conversation already, but I'm like, okay, let's, we need to talk about so many of these things right now. So let's do so it. Things. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you just start by giving a brief introduction or expand on my introduction and just give the listeners a little bit more insight as to who you are, the work you do, what you're all about. Yeah, I would love to. Okay. So I am, um, I grew up in a small town in Alberta. And I, in a huge position of privilege that I never had any insight around until much later in my life, um, which is really the definition of privilege. You don't know you have it because (laughs) you don't need to know. Anyway, so it was really a teacher that changed my life. And I remember, you know, there was 22 of us that started kindergarten together and the same 19 of us graduated together. Okay. So everybody knew everybody in this little town. And I knew the first and last name of every teacher I had. And, you know, hockey was a big thing because this hometown for me is um, where the Sutters grew up. And these are seven boys, six make the NHL. So hockey's a big part of my life and I still play it and coach it. And I, was drinking excessively in the Kinsella gravel pits, which is what you do in a small town. You find a great big hole where the Royal Canadian Mounted Police can't find you and you try to get a husband. And so I was attempting to do that and it wasn't working out awesome. And I remember one teacher in particular, and I and I have no idea what she taught me, but I remember where she was standing and what she was wearing and, you know, everything about the moment that she had to tell us the then captain of our hockey team had been killed. And uh, in an accident that day. And I remember even as a 16 year old kid, I remember thinking if the big people are okay, the little people will be just fine. If there's somebody at the helm leading at times of big emotion, the people in its wake will be okay. And I remember I went home to my dad that night and I said, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be like Mrs. Nordstrom. And he said, you want to be a teacher? And I was like, no, Jesus, I don't like kids. And I still (laughs) am. not a fan. I have three of my own and I'm still not a fan. But anyway, I was like, no, I, I think I want to be a psychologist. And he was so shit and excited to get me out of the Kinsella gravel pits. He's like, yes, I will pay for it. What do you need? Let's do it. <laughs> and he didn't realize it was going to take me 13 years to get a fucking PhD. But anyways, it's fine. So I got one. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in there, I became a civilian member of the RCMP for two years and worked in their health services department, really looking at trauma and organizations and how vicarious trauma really messes up families and how we do a very poor job of hanging on to the people doing the service in this world. We really are concerned about the people needing the provision of service and forget about the people doing the holding, the walking. Huh? And I came across a quote uh, recently that sort of surrounds everything that I do. Not recently. Oh my gosh, it's been three or four years now, but I love these words. And so I'll tell you, this is sort of the basis of everything I do now. It's a, it's by, um, the words are by a dead guy named Ram Das, And he was a philosopher and a yogi. And he said, he said this, we are all just here walking each other home. And 
it has become the mantra to everything I do because, you know, in the course of getting this PhD, I worked for the RCMP and started to be very interested in trauma. And I took my first job at the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary, where I worked for 10 years on a locked psychiatric inpatient unit for kids where there was lots of trauma histories. And, you know, we were trying to treat from a behavioral perspective when really it's all about story. Nothing is ever wrong with anybody. It's always about what's happened to them, not what's wrong with them. And so I started to learn a lot from those kids and families. And then I met my husband and we had three babies really fast and we were old. And so he said, I know what'll help you. Let's move closer to my mother. And so I ended up in this little town called Olds and I started a private practice. And and then I just started speaking about some of the things that I knew to be true. And I started in the world of educators and that's where kids these days came out of. And every time I was speaking across this country, they would be like, hey, do you have a book? And I was like, mm, no. So I wrote one and we self published it and it became a national bestseller and it's it's sold over half a million copies like it's ridiculous and then we I wrote another book with a teacher called teachers these days and it's also served the profession of education well because uh, I have a huge love for two professions um, first responders and teachers because I think they serve the most dysregulated amongst us and we do a very poor job in both of those or organizations of looking after the people doing the walking and so then I spent a lot of time in my career just developing resources in this world of mental health and speaking about it and how we do better and then Harper Collins um, approached me during the pandy and said, listen, Jody, we've watched your books. They've been successful. We're wondering if you would write a book for us. And I was like, well, let me check my schedule. <laughs> it was wide. Yes. And they were like, could you pitch us a proposal? And I was like, you know, I already know what it would be called. And, and they were like, oh, what, you know, what would it? I said, it'd be called feeling seen. And it's it's the answer to reconnecting this disconnected world. And they were like, oh, my gosh, could you, you know, is there a whole book in there? And I was like, mm, yeah. So I just it took me a year to write it. And um, it comes out into the world January 17th. And uh, it's already done very, very well. And we're jacked about it. And I go on tour across Canada and into New York doing a, a book tour in the next few weeks here. So it's been it's been wild and I have a practice. And so I have a, a clinical practice here. There's five clinicians that work um, out of my clinic and um, I still see a very small subset of patients, but it is, um, it's, it's a pretty big joy. My three babies are doing fantastic. The twins turn 10 uh, next week and uh, our oldest is, is 12 and I I'm married to this great farmer guy who's got a PhD and we got a spreadsheet for fucking everything. And I hate it. <laughs> He's lovely and he's great and dumb all at the same time. And he now works for this company and tries to tell me I have to be on a fucking budget. It's terrible. What is so that? There's it's dumb. <laughs> he's we got a spreadsheet for everything, Chelsea. And I am not why do you need to I it's minutia. Let's go for the big picture. I don't want to know how we're gonna get there. Why don't we have enough money? It's irrelevant. Let's yeah. just come on live in the moment. So we yeah. make this beautiful team that are often at odds with each other. And, um, and now my team here, you know, we have our, our clinic and then um, there's a team of six women who um, have been uh, part of the brand development side and our tour side. And I have a, listen, this is what's ridiculous to me. I have an agent, a two agents, I have a PR agent out of the U S and uh, an agent in Toronto. I, like, what is you believe that? happening? No, no. They're like, Hey, Dr. Carrington, what do you think about this? I'm like, Ooh. Oh, fuck. Okay, it's me. And then I always have an opinion about something, whether it's accurate or not. I make shit up all the time. I want to talk about everything in that very yep. brief synopsis. Um, but let's just start with let's start with kids these days, because this piece of work has been so impactful for me. It's been so impactful. I know for a lot of my clients, I work with a lot of teachers as well. 
Nice. And a lot of my network, I mean, I'm from Alberta. So a lot of my network is super familiar with you, huge fans of you. So let's just dive into kids these days. Where did you get the motivation for writing this book? I mean, I know you share that you worked obviously with kids um, at the Alberta hospital for 10 years and you had that you know, experience when you were younger with that teacher. So was there anything in particular that was like, an exceptionally notable notable experience that really made this vision come to life or that was really like, I need to get this out into the world? Yeah, I think that some of the things that used to piss me off the most, you know, in working with kids and families is once you get to know their story, see, context is a prerequisite for empathy. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that once you know somebody's story, once you know why they're showing up in the world, it's very difficult to not fall in love with them because people are hard to hate close up. We are wired neurophysiologically for connection. And in this sort of twist of irony, the hardest thing to do is to stay connected to other people because they, although we need each other, come with the highest potential cost because it's also in human relationship that we get hurt the most. Okay, so we require it for survival, but it's also the thing that can kill us the fastest. And it's remarkable, right, then how we navigate those things. And in just two generations, we have many more exit ramps in our abilities to stay farther away from each other and still function in society. Proximity to each other has has changed so dramatically in just two generations. Even if, you know, I, I say this in the book, but if you think about, you know, the square footage of the house that your grandfather was raised in and the square footage of the house in which we raise our babies, you know, that that in and of itself, right? At the end of the day, my, my father, you know, lived in a, a 700 square foot house, one bedroom, three brothers. He was the oldest. And every night they had dinner together. Mm-hmm. Every night they had nothing to do but to sit around the fire and tell stories of the day or, you know, read a book. But now, I mean, our babies just, I mean, my father's grandchildren, you know, at the end of school, for sure, we get their lunches made and do all the things, but then everybody's off on their, on their devices. And, you know, maybe I'm lucky to get us all around the dinner table. And then, you know, it's time to have some adult conversations. And so like, go, whereas before they were in the mix, they heard it. And if mom and dad fought, they knew about it. If they made up, they knew about it. And so much of the um, intricacies of human relationship happen behind closed doors or behind screens. And we set up these ideals that we all think we're failing at, which further perpetuates the the desire for disconnect, because obviously we can't measure up to everybody else when they're taking fucking family pictures on social media and posting their bikini pictures. And oh my God, I feel so fat. And you're like, fuck you, you should see me in it. So it's like this, you know, comparison is the thief of all joy. And we have such instant access to comparative others. And I think that, you know, particularly for our next generations, when you have not, the neural development to sort of make sense of Snapchat and why everybody's together on this snap map and you know what's happening over here on the TikTok and why I'm not like all of those things there's an instant inundation of data that can't be um, made sense of and so the ramifications of that certainly are a mental health crisis and it is a separation of you know trying to figure out what's wrong with the bad kids and the good ones and I you know I say this in kids these days it just became such a profound um, I don't know if it's a calling or like a, a desire to put my thoughts onto paper because I've assessed and treated over a thousand kids in this country and I've never met a bad kid, not one time. And every time I would go into a school or an organization or do a consult with a patient where they were like, we have never, ever seen a kid this bad. He hits and he spits and he bites and he tells everybody to fuck off and he draws bombs. And it would be the same scenario. And they would describe often, this is my least favorite string of words. He's an attention-seeking manipulative liar. It, you know, it would make my blood boil. So it was like, okay, so what, how can I describe the necessity to sort of, yes, you know, behavior is not acceptable or appropriate. And sometimes kids are assholes. And the question isn't, you know, like, why? 
why are they doing that? Mm-hmm. And if we can implore big people to sort of think about that in a different way, we actually then continue to sort of infuse them. We defuse burnout. We provide a sense of passion and purpose and acknowledgement for what it takes to show a baby how to be emotionally regulated because you can't tell them how to calm down or use their strategies. You've got to show them. And we've often, you know, very much still employ behavioral models with kids across every, well, everybody across major institutions like justice and, you know, our police training programs are still, the Department of Psychology, right? The college that is ran, that it runs me is very behaviorally motivated, right? You make a good choice, we reward you. You don't, we punish you until you decide to be fucking nice or make good choices. Ridiculous. Those were rules that were established for a world that no longer exists. And we have not updated that um, sort of necessity to infuse all of our organizations deliberately on purpose with relationships. Because if we don't, this massive disconnect that has been perpetuated by the pandemic globally, an experience where we all needed to physically separate from each other, to keep the world safe is just exacerbated what we're experiencing now, which is massive rates of burnout, divorce, mental health, and domestic violence, child maltreatment, because everybody's in this state of heightened arousal, right? Even in the most industrious countries, we are fucking killing each other or ourselves because we, we feel so alone. And I see that reward punishment model being so detrimental in the work that I do with my clients as well, with women struggling with their relationship with food and their bodies, because we have you know, we have this, this punishment that's present. And then, um, on the other side of that, we harbor shame, embarrassment, guilt for what we've done, but there's not a safe space to process that because there's no understanding. Right. And we've historically rewarded ourselves with food, right? So Mm. from the beginning of the, you know, sort of behavioral model, I mean, this is what Watson and Skinner understood, right? Is that like, if you punish a rat, right? If you shock them, they stop the behavior. Well, guess how we got them to do the behavior more? We fed them colored water or pellets. So at the very basics of operant conditioning, it's around this idea that, you know, work your ass off and then you get a cheat meal. Starve yourself ridiculously. And then you are allowed to lick a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. Like, that is your big prize. And it's then gets so messed up in this process because what's interesting about the ability to chew and swallow from a neurophysiological perspective is we are most regulated when we are chewing and swallowing because you can't swallow and be dysregulated. It's biologically mm-hmm. impossible. So how are we doing this? I often talk about, particularly in school, using food mm-hmm. as a way to regulate somebody. Look at me, look at me, let's take a drink of water, right? Yeah. And when there's such a fucked up relationship with that, it becomes becomes really difficult to even use that as a source of safety because I don't, I'm so worried about what I'm going to put in my mouth. And so there is just such an intricacy of, you know, how it's come to to be that, you know, what, what is food used for instead of to nourish and heal and feed the body and to celebrate the body, it is much more about, you know, just a reward and then a punishment. You can't eat these things. Watch gluten, watch your sugar intake. Oh my God. What are they? And the more we know this, the more you tell somebody they can't have something or they shouldn't think about something like don't think about an elephant. Right. The data is massive on this. Then we fucking do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you allow these things to be accessible and that we sort of teach this idea of like, what does your body want and need in this moment and how can you serve it well? And mm-hmm. you know, what does this do to it or for it or with it? That is a very different organizational structure in your brain. And it becomes so much easier to make those decisions. And then we often don't, you know, talk very much about the whole point that is, you know, just the difference that our bodies show up with in the world from a, you know, genetics perspective. And like, why 
why does she look like this? And why don't I look like this? And what it like, holy Christ. So comparison now and the access for comparison. I mean, the, the only way you could look at it and somebody else's naked body was to very trickily see if you could get a Playboy magazine right? Like, let me see what somebody else's boobs look like. And then like, how do I see that now? Instantly, you have access to whatever the ideal is these days. And it is the exception to the rule to see body positivity, or, you know, the people the the five or seven Instagram accounts that do very uh, deliberate job of like showing up in their underwear, or our Lizzo's of the world who are like, fuck you, right? And they're celebrated, but they are so, so, so specific in this whole culture, right? Question for you. How much time do you spend thinking about food? What to eat, how much to eat, if your diet is healthy enough, if you should be on a diet? How much time do you spend thinking about your body? How you wish it looked different? Maybe you wish it looked like someone else's? Do you blame your body and feel at war with it? Are you confused by all of the information out there that tells us what foods are good and what foods are bad and how we should be eating? I get it. It's exhausting. This is why I created a food and body freedom course. This course is a 12-week virtual program that runs three times a year. In the course, we talk all about the diet culture and dieting practices and why they are harmful. I teach you how to have a healthy metabolism and a healthy relationship with your body. And of course, all about nutrition, how to meal plan, how to read food labels, how to understand your body's needs and how to make all of your favorite foods fit. You have access to multiple worksheets and a step-by-step guide to how to find food freedom at last. Not only do you get access to the amazing collective of women that will be participating in the course with you, but you also get access to private coaching calls with me. This course is designed to transform your relationship with food and your body, and I guarantee that your life will be so much more fulfilling on the other end of it. So if you are ready to get started, head over to my website and click the Food and Body Freedom link to find out more. Or feel free to reach out to me personally to chat about whether or not this is the right option for you. All of the links are included in the show notes as well. Now, back to the episode. And so, yeah, all of that. And that's just, you're speaking my language there. But how does that shame that we might feel from the punishment show up in kids? Because like you said, kids aren't inherently bad there. You haven't met any bad kids. So when we then are punishing kids for the behavior that they probably know wasn't acceptable in the first place, especially repeatedly, you know, they know, well, I've done this before and I've gotten in trouble for it before and I do it again and I get in trouble again. Like that's not creating that safe space for them to express themselves. And then there isn't that understanding there. And that isn't, there isn't that connection. And something that you say multiple times in the book kids these days is that they're not attention seekers, they're connection seekers. Yes. And I think so much of this is that we try to get our needs met, which is really for acknowledgement to be seen with the best of our abilities. And if nobody's ever taught us how to do this in an emotionally regulated way, we'll turn it up until we get noticed. And it's that just that example of, you know, many of us don't come out of the gate in, in an assholery-ish way. Truly, that's the sense for kids. They will do what they can to get your connection. Mom, mom, mom. And if you're like, just a minute, mm-hmm. mom, hey, I am on the phone. You need to take a breather. I will be right back. And then they throw a punch their sister because they are going to turn it up until their needs get met, you see? And so we are also very much wired to do that. And so when you come into this world, you have very little skill in getting your needs met. Fight, flight, or freeze. So what does a baby do when something's wrong? When they need something, they cry. They lose their friggin' minds. They flip their lid. And the job of big people is to walk them home. Uh, 
Huh. If I put a crying infant in anybody's arms, universally, regardless of age, race, religion, socioeconomic status, or gender identity, if I put that baby in your arms, you would engage in a rhythmic exchange in an attempt to soothe that baby if you had no other opportunity to give it to anybody else, right? Whether you're a 67-year-old farmer and you've never held a baby for years, or you're a 13-year-old teenager who like doesn't really know what's happening, mm-hmm. you will engage instinctually in a rhythmic exchange shaking out like this. And the question is, why is the rhythmic exchange? Well, because the human race is much more alike than we are different. Like race is a social construct because we all started in exactly the same place, which was hearing the rhythmic exchange, the heartbeat of our mamas. Bum, 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 bum. And regardless of whether she's alive or you have a relationship with her or not, your understanding of being emotionally regulated, this idyllic state of calm is essentially in our bones. And when we are at our most distressed, whether, you know, we hate our bodies or our husbands or our wives or our kids or our choices in, you know, drinking last night, what we all desire is to get back to that state of calm. And when somebody has shown us how to do it again and again and again, if somebody's met those needs of that infant, okay, 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 and met those needs at least in a predictable amount of time or in a sequence that is predictable and it becomes rote and it becomes in that sort of ingrained in that way, they start to develop neural pathways so that they can do that on their own. And once they sort of get language and they have people in their village that can be like, okay, whoa, 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 sharing is caring. Come here. No, let's try this again. Let's do this. And then you get a, you know, you're, you have an educator who can support you through that process and you have a grandma or a cookum or an auntie or a mom or a dad or a whatever, even when some people in your world are falling apart because, you know, of grief or something happens. If you have a, a village that can do that, you get reasonably regulated adults. If you have kids that are, you know, come from multiple generations of abuse, neglect, and trauma, or at any given time, mom and dad, you know, become domestically violent in their relationship with each other, or you're caught in the middle of a divorce and everything is a disaster, kids learn that they don't have a lot of opportunity to regulate emotion. And so they step into the school system with the second they get activated, like do this math question. Everybody needs to have this on my desk in the next 20 minutes. And the kid's like, you know, the one with who's been shown how to say, you know, Mrs. S, I don't understand how to do this or I'm, I'm struggling. Whereas, you know, somebody just has fight, flight or freeze on board. They're like, fuck you, I'm out of here. I don't understand. Yeah. And so- you do the best you can with what you got and you can't give away something you've never received. And the necessity to teach emotional regulation is predicated on relationship. I can't tell you how to regulate emotion. I can't text an infant and say, use your words, calm down. I have to be in the same physical presence. And again, when we teach online, when we were less effective, when we give feedback online, if you and I were in the same room, we would be much more effective because from a neurophysiological perspective, our bodies would change way better that we cannot make that happen to the same degree because of technological advances. However, I mean, this is, we're lucky because of it, because we can do this. You can be in a different province than me and we can still, you know, have this conversation. But what's interesting is that it's not the technology that's the harmful factor. It's how we use it. And the hardest thing we will do is look into the eyes of the people we love. We much prefer to spend, you know, protect our souls in this way. And so the conversation really is much more about how do we be brave enough to step in to have those conversations show up for our colleagues and our neighbors and our partners and take those risks of staying integrated in relationship because it will for sure serve them better, but always in the end um, be better for us. And so with the importance of the big people being regulated so that they can lead the babies home and help them with those moments of flipping their lids, what happens or like, how do we navigate when inevitably the vast majority of our generation, especially now post 
can be, is so emotionally disconnected. Like, what do you do if those educators, the caregivers don't have those tools and they can't emotionally regulate themselves? Like, then what? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly not a black and white experience, right? And so all of us have the ability to stay regulated when we're not under distress. And we what happens in times of dysregulation is we, we, we don't lose that ability. We lose access to it. And so what I want us to start to think about in the world of big people is how do we gather the resources to maintain access to our best parts, to the best parts of ourselves? What do we need in place to be able to make that you know, continue to happen. And I'll give you an example of this. If you think about like a kid who is um, three, if you've ever sat with a kid at, you know, at a dinner table who's three years old, okay, their emotional regulation skills are just being started to be developed, but they have some, right? They can take a deep breath. They can use their words. They can do those things. And so let's imagine we're sitting around the kitchen table and, you know, your daughter is sitting there and you're having a conversation with her and she's, you know, being lovely and using her manners and speaking to her sibling. And, you know, maybe your mother-in-law is there and your mother-in-law is like, wow, she's amazing. And you're like, mm-hmm. show great how you say your alphabet and so this kid like whips off the alphabet and everybody's like oh my god this is amazing and she's like grandma can you please pass me this and grandma said of course and then this little one says mommy can i have a ring pop for breakfast and you say no no my love we don't have suckers for breakfast and she fucking snaps <laughs> and she flips the table and flips the bird and She's under the table and she's hissing like a cat. And you're like, your mother-in-law vapor locks. Like she, <gasps> and, and you're like, oh my God, I don't even know what's happening right now. And what is, you know, what is the deal? Has this baby lost her ability to use her manners? Has she lost her ability to say the alphabet? No, Th- those things are still in her body, in her brain. She's lost access to them. And the same thing happens to big people. When I get into a profession like education or to serve as a psychologist or a police officer, I have the ability to be amazing. In fact, I mean, I am a phenomenal fucking parent when I'm regulated. I wrote that best-selling book, Kids These Days, but if you watch me with my own personal kids many days, you wouldn't buy the book. (laughs) Because I know how to do it when I'm emotionally regulated. But the question isn't about do I need more training in emotional regulation. I need to figure out how to... keep access to the best parts of myself, right? What is it that I need in my world to be able to access those and to understand and give myself grace that sometimes I'm going to fuck it up. Sometimes I'm exhausted. Sometimes I want to throw punch everybody. Sometimes, right? We're allowed, first of all, A, to give us ourselves grace, understand that we have to surround ourselves with people who can acknowledge us. And if I think about the three things that I need to do so often in this process, it really is always back to this idea of I got to stay connected to the people that matter the most to me, right? When you sit with the winners, the conversation is different. I talk about this in feeling seen. I didn't talk about this so much at kids these days, but when you sit with the winners, the conversation is different. So who are your people, not your friends, but the people who really know you to the core that you can depend on to, to, you know, sort of give you the straight answers and pick you up when you have the roughest days. And then always that mind body connection. I mean, you know, this, you know, particularly as a nutritionist, this idea of, you know, what we fuel our body with really matters, but also, you know, so significantly what we tell ourselves, right. And so where are we at in sort of dropping our shoulders taking a deep breath, really recognizing that to get our prefrontal cortex back on, we have to be back in a physical state where at some level we're reconnected to our head and our heart. And then the last thing for me, you know, when I think about this, this practice is really about walking my why. Why are we here on this planet? Is it to come out of here and be happy? Is it really about, you know, we're just, we want to leave this legacy? I think that's all bullshit. I think what, why we're really here is to, to string together moments of joy. And when you seek, you will find because we're just walking each other home, 
right? And if I remember my power is in the walking, that all that is required of me on any given day is to give the best I can with what I got. And that's enough, then it is, it makes it so much more palpable. And I have so much more access to the moments of joy that I bring to everybody else. And mostly what I bring to myself, I often, do you have time for me to tell you the story? Yes, go. Yeah. So I often tell, I, I haven't told this story very many times, but I'm going to, I'll tell it to you because it makes sense to me or in this moment. It's okay. So we think about this world of body positivity. Okay. I, the last thing I ever fucking want to do is go swimming with my children. Okay. Now just strap on a bathing suit after you have had, I have a twin house that will forever be present because of the gift that my babies gave me at 38. Anyways, it's fine. And so they decide we're going to go swimming at the West Edmonton Mall. Okay. They love it. Their father loves it. I think it's a disaster. It's a cesspool of. Totally is. Yes. Okay. But I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this. And you, again, I, I fucking wrote the book on this. You got, you can't tell them, you got to show them. You can't like, you got to show up. Okay. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to get the cup, she bathing suit. We're going to go now three kids under five. There is a fucking disaster happening every time. And so I throw shit in a bag for them and this new cup, she bathing suit in for me, because why would you try it on? You just got to go. So Oh my God, the pool opens at nine. Everybody's got to get ready. I'm like, fuck. So I'm dressing them, put on the cup she bathing suit, only to understand that it has a wedge in the backyard. And I will, I have to make a choice about which cheek I'm going to cover. Okay. Because it does, there is not an opportunity for both. Now, the model on the ads had a plunging neckline and I have significant amounts of chest. And so I think, wow, that would really look good on me because I could tie it around my neck and just show the cleave there like that. Now, the model had remarkably less to cover. So the triangles did better at covering her. Okay, not me. So I'm barely keeping the nips in. I've chosen the left cheek and here we go to the water park. Okay, and I'm going to frolic because I love my body yeah. and I'm here for it. Who's going to know me? Who's going to know me anyway? Walk into the water park, change the thing. People say, I turn on the corner. This lovely woman says to me, Dr. Carrington, oh my God, I love your book. And I was like, <laughs> trying to cover the nip, keep the other cheek from being exposed. And I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so good. Yep. My only solace was to do the tube slide so I could go away from people who might know me. That was my second mistake. I got up in the tube slide. Ooh, I pushed my daughter down there. This is becoming a longer story than I anticipated. And she's scared. Okay. So she's like, I can't do it by myself. This is a COVID time. I say, you can't, we can't go together. This Bella will not let us go together. You have to go. You be brave, girl. Mommy, show you. Look at me. I'm here basically not covering my nipples. You got <laughs> she heads down the slide. I jump in the tube and instantly sink to the bottom with my one left cheek showing. And I'm stuck. So he says, your time is now. Like, you can go. And he doesn't want to touch me because it's COVID. So I start bucking. Huh? And I start bucking towards the thing. And I'm hoping he doesn't notice. And by the time he's like, it's your turn to go. I'm like, I fucking know. <laughs> and so I grab him and shoot myself. And as I get going, I think I got to go fast because obviously my daughter's having a fucking panic attack at the bottom. And as I go down, I am the heavier you are, the faster you go. I am barely fucking keeping her in the slide. Up <laughs> the side, down the other one, through the thing. And there is a whoop at the end. Yeah. I have never <laughs> seen a fucking tsunami. <laughs> 
like that before in my life. Okay. And so I let <clears throat> because the water come over the top. And then I decide to say to the guy, let me explain to you something. If you want moms to feel good about themselves, when they go down this tube slide, trying to show their daughters how to love their bodies, you should put a place for the water to go. <laughs> so it doesn't have to go everywhere. Okay? <laughs> and my only reward was my baby girl at the end of the thing, holding her tube slide, going like this. Now, I didn't give a shit if I had a nipple hanging out or what the about. I just about drowned everybody in West Edmonton Mall. I took that fucking tube and away we went again. <laughs> and I think that's the point. Okay, is that we are only here for joy. And I love telling that story. I love thinking about those moments. I love that in that time, all of that debacle was happening. And I had the audacity to judge other people and what they look like in bathing suits. I had the audacity to be like, mm, she didn't look in the mirror before because guess fucking what? Neither can I. And I know that we're doing the best we can with what we got. And we cannot tell people, right, that you have to accept yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You have to do all those things and take your risks and, you know, be the CEO of your company and start a podcast and do those things. You cannot tell them. You got to show. Yeah. And you will feel like a piece of shit most of the time, but there will be some joy in there. And that is the reason why we're here. So I try to keep that is that is the reason I think that keeps going. That is that is how we allow other people to feel seen is when we can find moments of joy in ourselves because the most vulnerable emotion on the planet is joy. And when you are finding moments of laughing either with your team or your partner or your sisters, whatever that looks like, I know you have the capacity to allow another in your world to feel seen. And the more we give it away, the healthier we will be as a society. That's a beautiful story. That is amazing. And I love so much that you say the most vulnerable emotion is joy. Also talking about feeling seen, something that I always say, and I say that this is one of the reasons that I think women struggle so much in, in their body image, in their parenting, and just not ever feeling enough is because we don't ever really feel seen or heard or validated. We're often dismissed. It's, um, I think Rachel Hollis writes something to the effect in one of her books about how we have to, you know, take care of our kids, make sure that they're bathed, they get to school, they get to all the sports. We also have to make sure that our husband is taken care of, you know, we're putting out every night and we look like some idealistic person on social media. Um, and we also work a full-time job and also a part-time job. And then we have three other side hustles and we don't drop a bead of sweat or ask for help through any of it. Right. And it's just so outrageous, you know, but that is the pressure that we feel. And so when you can share a story like that and be like, yeah, this was uncomfortable as fuck. And I embraced it. And you know what, at the end of it, it was worth it. There was that joy at the end of it. Yeah. And I think that's the point, right? Like, and so, you know, people sort of ask each other and, you know, me and you and, you know, in this process of like, okay, so how do we get back to this state of, you know, really finding our purpose and our passion? And I, and I really think that the segue to all of that is joy, mm -hmm. because when you can seek for those moments, I know you're regulated and the prerequisite to allowing anybody else to, to feel seen or for you to be able to see yourself, joy is a big part of it. And it is sort of the secret 007 move to know that we're emotionally regulated. And when we are there in our state access to our best selves, we're going to get the most out of this. And, and none of us knows how many heartbeats we have left. Mm -hmm. So stop fucking worrying about what everybody else thinks and feels and do the best you can with what you got. And you're going to fuck it up. And then you make the best of it again tomorrow. Like it's, I mean, it is, it's so much easier said than done, but I really think it is this game of reconnection, getting back to those best parts of ourselves again and again and again. That is the trick. 
And so is that philosophy kind of what underpins feeling seen? Let's just talk a little bit about your new baby that's coming out in five freaking days, five days, January 17th. Can you believe it? No, I cannot wait. And, and that is the absolute philosophical underpinnings of all of it. It really is this idea, right, that we are wired for connection. And the more we disconnect from each other, the less we have access to sort of keep ourselves in the game. And so part of the trick is, what does it take to get reconnected? You don't arrive. You don't arrive at this place of I'm connected, I'm fulfilled, I found my passion, I've got my people, I'm a fucking amazing. No, nobody believes that to be true for more than like 30 seconds in a run. And so the question is, you know, why did we get so lost? Because I don't think you can address what you don't acknowledge. And so I really outlay, it's actually half of the book is talking about why we're so disconnected, right? Mm -hmm. And it's things like, you know, we've lost an emotional language, we have lost proximity to each other, the, you know, trauma, grief, the weight of the workplaces, the ex the expectations of that we have, particularly as women to balance home and life and be successful and start a side hustle and be an entrepreneur and have all your shit together and still make it to the fucking hockey game or the swim meet or whatever the shit. And you're supposed to love it. I'm not a fucking fan of being a mom. I love my children, but I much prefer to be to do this to be at work. And it's, it's blasphemous in so many circles because, you know, all uh, many of us still sort of the expectations of our mothers, we just wanted to show up and be a mom. And I love so many parts of it, but I'm such a better mom because I work and I'm such a better mom because I have found things in my life that I just cannot wait to get back to every single day. And many times it's my kids, but many times it isn't. Many times I'm like, oh, okay, five days and we get to fucking be on the road for two weeks. Thank you. Jesus. <laughs> and I miss them horribly and I can't wait to get back to them and, you know, all of those kind of things. But like, it's okay to sort of be in that place. And I think you can't, you can't tell anybody how to be great. You've got to show them. And there's a risk in that. And if we can, you know, infuse the whole process with joy. So I talk about the great disconnect. I talk about acknowledgement and empathy as really being the answer to feeling seen, um, the desire that all of us have. And then how do we stay there when, you know, how do we get back there when we get lost? That's the third part of the book. And it's just, it's really this journey that I think, you know, I hope it's a timeless book that, you know, can be read again and again and again. Some of the books I have on the shelf, like Atomic Habits or any of Brene's books or Liz Gilbert's books, I, I read again and again and again and again because the, the message is timeless. We will never outgrow the desire, the need to get back to the state of emotional regulation to be able to give it away to other people. That's why we are here in this human race. And uh, a roadmap to do that was really sort of the premise of Feeling Seen. That's amazing. Well, I'm so excited to read it. I cannot wait. Is there like a particular mark that you are hoping to leave on the world through your work? I know that you say you're not super big on like legacy or anything like that. And you know, you're really big on joy, but what? Oh, like, yes. I'm people... big on, I want to become a New York Times bestseller. I would love to be on the stage with five people. I want to, and not just like sort of to meet them, but I like really want to collaborate with Pink mm -hmm. oh. and um, Brene Brown, Shonda mm -hmm. Rhimes, Ellen and um, Michelle Obama. If I could be, you know, having conversations at that table and as a thought leader, um, that would be the pinnacle. Um, I have, you know, big uh, ideas about it, that my opinion will matter at big tables that I can make, you know, infrastructure changes in the world of education, in the world of policing. Uh, I would love to have an impact in the world of hockey. Um, I, I have lots of ideas about those things. So yeah, I would, I would really love, I think, to be able to really infiltrate some of the thinking about how we treat each other and particularly kids, um, that I think can really change the world. So that's the goal. How do you want people to feel from that? You know, coming uh, out of having seen, seen, are you new here? Seen. I want them to feel. <laughs> well, I knew that you were going to say that, of course. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I mean, the definition of feeling seen, right, is, you know, after, you know, we spent lots of time with trying to understand really what it means. It is it is a profound and deep sense of getting got. It is often done without words, without sound. It is a capacity that's possessed by all of us, but mastered by none of us. And you know it instantly. And it doesn't it can happen in a second on the side of the road when you're desperately, you know, looking for somebody to help you, or it can happen, you know, after, you know, 67 dates and you finally feel like somebody you've been safe enough to sort of show the most vulnerable parts of your soul and somebody has been brave enough to hold it. I think it is something that is almost indescribable, but each of us knows it deeply when we feel it. Have you felt it? Oh God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you ever felt seen by somebody? Yeah, for sure. I have. I've felt seen by you. Immensely. Yeah. Immensely. And that's, I mean, that is the highest order compliment of the world. If somebody mm-hmm. can say, Chelsea, as a result of this, you know, working with you or being coached by you or mentored by you. I mean, I just feel like I matter. I feel so seen by you. Like, fuck, that's worth anything, everything to me. Yeah. Cool. I love that. Well, I can't wait to read it. I know that everyone who's listening also is going to be super excited to read it. I would love to just wrap up with one final question. So we chatted a lot about themes of children. We chatted a lot about themes of obviously emotional regulation, dysregulation, adulthood, parenthood, educators, and womanhood. And so I'm curious for you, what does it mean to be a woman? Jesus. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I... I think what it means in this generation um, is we have a remarkable responsibility to rewrite the narrative of what it means to be a woman. And I, I love being an underdog. I love being underestimated. I love being in positions where I can be like, fucking watch me. And I feel so grateful to be in this place as a woman because I think we have all the skills that the world needs right now. We have an emotional language that far exceeds men historically and will for many years to come because we treat women to this day very differently than we treat men. And the things that we've idealized for a very long time are becoming obsolete, brute force, strength, all of those things we will always need. This isn't about penises and vaginas. I have two sons and a daughter, and I hope that all three of them do beautifully in this world. The question for me is, as a woman, the responsibility to sort of show this world how to do it is the time is now. And I'm so grateful of, you know, to, to be in this position to, to contribute. Well, and you're doing a phenomenal job of it. You really are. Mm-hmm. I told you this before we started recording, but I felt like every single chapter in kids these days was a personal therapy session. I just felt like so much. Of, and I'm not, and you know, I'm, I, I would say I'm an educator of sorts, but I'm not a teacher. I don't work with babies, but I work with the mothers of those babies. And so it just resonated so, so deeply with me. Um, I think it's just such a profound piece of work for everyone and anyone and uh everyone should read it if you haven't this is a huge plug on how amazing (laughs) that book is and i yeah i just can't wait to read your next one and just keep up with all of your work you are just phenomenal and i'm so grateful that you were here today thank you so much for taking the time i really i can't even describe how grateful i am ah thank you for having me it was a joy thank you It was so great. So I just would love to get you to provide some pieces of contact information or where people can find you if they are interested in reading your books, learning more about you, um, maybe, you know, inquiring about your services or the support that you offer. How can people find you? Yeah, everything we have is on the website. So drjodycarrington.com. And then um, I spend a lot of time on social media um, trying to provide resources. And we have a blog and we have, a, I think, a podcast coming out this year. And so everything lands on that website uh, at drjodycarrington.com. 
Okay, perfect. I will be sure to link that in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you everyone for tuning in and we will catch you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you guys got value from the show, I would love for you to rate and share it. And if you have any questions about the conversation today, you can always find me on Instagram or Facebook at Chelsea Glubish. Catch you on the next one.